This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy will come to order. Uh, it's a pleasure to chair our second sole hearing of the East Asia Subcommittee on Strength Through Partnership Building the U.S.-Taiwan Relationship. America's bonds with Taiwan's vibrant democracy of nearly 24 million people continues to grow. Taiwan's democracy serves as a model in the Indo-Pacific. As authoritarianism deepens its hold in the region, Taiwan serves as a powerful counterexample, proving that reports of democracy's demise are unfounded. That Taiwan continues to flourish just 100 miles away from mainland China is a testament to the enduring strength of its people and the strength of the universal values that we share with the people of Taiwan. The Taiwan Relations Act of 1979, three joint communiques and six assurances have underpinned this fragile peace in the Taiwan Strait, insulating Taiwan's democracy and economic system from serious interference. We have seen uh, elections which uh, have worked to prove democracy uh, works in that country. Despite widespread Chinese government meddling and attempts to spread disinformation, and it served as a referendum on the Chinese government's longstanding efforts to adopt a one-country, two-systems model for Taiwan. As Taiwan was preparing to vote, Beijing had begun to strip away the right to vote in Hong Kong denying its people the high degree of autonomy guaranteed by the 1984 Sino-British Declaration and the Basic Law of Hong Kong. And in the past year, the Chinese military's incursions across the median line and into Taiwan's air defense identification zone have increased to their highest level in a generation. Beyond the strait, Beijing has turned to the use of force to assert territorial claims on its border with India and it has sought to rewrite maps in the South China Sea, challenging the international rules-based system. All of these provocative actions towards Taiwan, particularly against the backdrop of the PRC's violation of their agreements regarding Hong Kong, have contributed to great concern about the PRC's future intentions towards Taiwan. This hearing offers a chance to discuss ways we can bolster Taiwan's defenses to avert armed conflict in the Taiwan Strait. This hearing also allows us to examine how the United States can better support Taiwan's standing in the world and help it build relationships with the international community so it can withstand Beijing's efforts to deny it access to diplomatic and economic partners overseas. We know how China views Taiwan. We should focus our attention on how the world views Taiwan as a reliable partner. The COVID-19 pandemic is a preview of what the world has to gain by giving Taiwan a larger place on the international stage. Even in the face of a recent uptick in infections, the Taiwan model, characterized by early detection, contact tracing, and universal acceptance of mask wearing, spared Taiwan the worst ravages of the pandemic. Just as Taiwan stepped up in providing PPE to our hospitals at the height of the pandemic in the United States, we must return the favor by expediting the delivery and increasing the number of vaccines to our friend and partner, Taiwan. Senator Romney and I agree upon this issue. The World Health Organization 
could have been a forum for Taiwan to share its remarkable success and best practices with the global community. But Beijing has used the One China policy as a bludgeon to shut out Taipei from the World Health Assembly and Senator Romney and I and other members of this subcommittee campaign to allow for Taiwan's meaningful participation. The Biden administration must use its vote, its voice, and influence to unlock the doors of the WHA and other international organizations to Taiwan. And in order to build upon our already strong bilateral relationship with Taiwan, we have to literally show up. Towards that end, I was proud that my, that, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, Senator Rubio's Taiwan Fellowship Act was recently passed by the Senate. The bill will send U.S. government officials to Taiwan to learn, to study, and to work for up to two years. The Indo-Pacific is key to the United States' alliances and relationships, home to 60% of the world's inhabitants, and this legislation will ensure that more of our civil servants throughout the United States uh, continue to be able uh, to go to that region. So with that, uh, I just want to welcome our witnesses. Uh, thank you so much for your willingness to be with us today and trying to recognize uh, the ranking member, Senator from Utah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I uh, appreciate your convening this hearing uh, on this extraordinarily important topic. Uh, thank you also to our witnesses, uh, Mr. Fritz and Ambassador Barks Ruggles. Appreciate the uh, commitment you have to this region, to this people, uh, to the interests of the United States of America, and your willingness to uh, testify here today, and your ongoing work. Um, I'm going to be very brief this morning. Uh, the United States of America believes that the people of Taiwan should be allowed to determine their own destiny. This is an inescapable aspect of having, having respect for the dignity of humankind. The Chinese Communist Party, on the other hand, believes that it should be free to usurp the will of the people of Taiwan. Taiwan is not some small outpost. It's comprised, as the chairman indicated, of almost 25 million people. It's one of the largest 20 global economies and leads the world in a number of cutting-edge technologies. It has its own government and its own military. But the Chinese Communist Party attempts to cut it off from global association and choke its economy, and it threatens invasion by military incursion and incendiary language. The question today is how America, a nation that believes in the dignity of humanity, can aid the millions of people of Taiwan to remain free to make their own decisions, to determine their own course, and to raise their children in the way of their own choosing. Quite simply, it's a matter of believing that the people of Taiwan should be free to make their own choice or whether instead whether the Communist Chinese Party should take that choice away from them and oppress them. So I look forward to our chance to, uh, to hear from our uh, witnesses and to be able to ask questions on these topics. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you so much. And let me, uh, let me then introduce our first witness. Uh, our first witness, uh, Mr. Fritz, uh, is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the East Asian and Pacific Affairs Bureau. Uh, Jonathan Fritz is a career member of the Foreign Service. Uh, he has primary responsibility at the State Department for China, Mongolia, and Taiwan. 
Uh, prior to his current post, he was the Director of, for Bilateral and Regional Affairs in the State Department's Office of Internal, uh, International uh, Communications and Information Policy. He has previously also been posted to the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Uh, of note, Mr. Fritz also served as an advisor uh, to the U.S. Trade Representative. Uh, welcome, Mr. Fritz. Whenever you're comfortable, please begin. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, ranking member, and members of the subcommittee for the opportunity to be here today to speak to you about our partnership with Taiwan and our efforts to coordinate with like-minded partners to promote Taiwan's international space and deter conflict in the Taiwan Strait. Since the election of President Tsai Ing-wen in 2016, the PRC has endeavored to unilaterally alter the status quo in cross-strait relations and isolate Taiwan from the international community. The PRC's increasingly aggressive behavior toward Taiwan endangers the very stability that has allowed this region to peacefully prosper. Despite President Tsai's determination to maintain the status quo across the strait, Beijing has been unwilling to engage with her. Instead, the PRC has continued to apply military, diplomatic, and economic pressure. To counter Beijing's attempts to intimidate Taiwan, we will continue to make available to it the defense articles and services necessary for Taiwan's self-defense consistent with the Taiwan Relations Act and our One China policy. The United States has notified more than $32 billion worth of arms to Taiwan since 2009. But arms sales alone cannot ensure Taiwan's ability to defend itself. Our expanding security cooperation encourages Taiwan to prioritize capabilities that complicate PRC planning for an invasion, including small, mobile, cost-effective systems like coastal defense cruise missiles, as well as reserve force reform to strengthen Taiwan society's ability to resist in a conflict. Beijing has also executed a campaign to entice Taiwan's few remaining diplomatic partners to discontinue official ties in favor of the PRC. It has pressured countries to deny permission for Taiwan representative offices that would conduct unofficial relations, and it has continued to pressure UN agencies to prevent Taiwan from meaningfully participating in their work. Strong US support for Taiwan is paramount in light of this coercive behavior. Today, Taiwan has just 15 diplomatic partners after losing seven since President Tsai's inauguration in 2016. These, important, these partners are important for Taiwan in a variety of manners, not least of which is they advocate for Taiwan's participation in international organizations. Through our diplomatic and commercial engagements, we seek to highlight to these countries the benefits of having a reliable partner like Taiwan. To support Taiwan's unofficial bilateral relationships, U.S. missions throughout the world engage with Taiwan's local representatives. U.S. leadership in expanding our own engagement with Taiwan encourages other governments to do the same. Our newly liberalized guidelines for engagement with Taiwan representatives were warmly welcomed by Taiwan, probably for this very reason. Another way we support Taiwan's international space is through the Global Cooperation and Training Framework, or GCTF. The GCTF, facilitated by the American Institute in Taiwan and co-sponsored by allied partners like Japan and Australia, provides training and technical assistance to third country participants, demonstrating the value of Taiwan's expertise and participation on the global stage. Since its inception in 2015, the GCTF has featured dozens of workshops that have provided training to over 1,000 participants. The specifically appropriated $3 million in funding to support GCTF for the first time this year will significantly expand that program's reach. To build Taiwan's resiliency against PRC economic coercion, we are deepening trade, investment, and other economic ties. 
In November of last year, we established the Economic Prosperity Partnership Dialogue with Taiwan to discuss key economic issues such as supply chain security, investment screening, and science and technology collaboration. Such efforts advance U.S. interests and help diversify Taiwan's economy away from over-reliance on the PRC. High-level visits that advance our substantive interests are another important way to show our support. In April, President Biden sent an unofficial delegation led by former Senator Chris Dodd to mark the 42nd anniversary of the signing of the Taiwan Relations Act and send a clear signal about the ongoing U.S. commitment to Taiwan and its democracy. Last week, the Biden-Harris administration announced a plan for international vaccine donations, including to Taiwan. We were grateful for Senators Duckworth, Sullivan, and Coons visiting Taiwan to announce that donation and underscore our deep appreciation for Taiwan's assistance to the United States in the dark days of the early period of the pandemic. Moving forward, we will seek to, we will seek and consider opportunities for more such visits. Congressional support for Taiwan has been paramount in the successful and consistent application and articulation of our longstanding One China policy. Moving forward, we will continue to rely on your support to achieve shared objectives, including through appropriations related to implementing the CHIPS Act to secure U.S. supply chains and advanced semiconductors. Now I would like to give the floor to my colleague, Ambassador Barks Ruggles, who will further discuss our efforts to support Taiwan's meaningful participation in international organizations. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, let me give you a more formal introduction, Ambassador. Um, Ambassador Erica Barks-Ruggles was appointed in January this year as senior bureau official for the Bureau, for the bureau of International Organization Affairs. Prior to her current post, Ambassador Barks-Ruggles was a senior diplomatic scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center and was the acting chancellor at, of the College of International Strategic Affairs at the National Defense University. And she also has served as the ambassador from the United States to the Republic of Rwanda. So we welcome you, Ambassador. Um, whenever you're ready, please begin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member Romney and all the distinguished members of the subcommittee. It is an honor to be here today. I am appearing before you as the Senior Bureau Official for the Bureau of International Organization Affairs. I'm pleased that Ambassador Michelle Sisson, uh, who has been nominated to lead the Bureau, had her hearing before this committee last month. I want to echo my colleague Jonathan Fritz's words about the importance we, share, we place on Taiwan's meaningful participation in the UN and its related bodies, and share some details about my Bureau's work on this important issue. Taiwan's transparent and democratic management of the COVID-19 pandemic is a model for the region and for the world. As you know, this virus knows no politics and knows no boundaries. And we need to ensure that we are hearing from everyone with a role to play in the fight against COVID-19, especially those that have been largely successful in protecting their populations from the worst ravages of this pandemic. At the UN Security Council on May 7th, Secretary Blinken called for modernization of the coalitions we include in diplomacy and development efforts, including forging non-traditional partnerships with civil society and the private sector. It is no coincidence that on the very same day, he also called on the World Health Organization to allow Taiwan to participate as an observer in the World Health Assembly. Taiwan's public health experts who have worked to protect the 24 plus million people on the island are a prime example of the key actors with important information to share. They deserve a voice in the room 
in institutions like the World Health Organization. Shutting them out of last month's World Health Assembly under pressure from the People's Republic of China weakened us all. I am proud of the work my team did to advocate for Taiwan's participation and equally proud of our efforts to work closely with partners to address and broaden the coalition of countries that share the objective of having Taiwan's voice heard. But there is clearly much more work to be done. In that vein, for more than a decade, the Bureau of International Organization Affairs has convened biannual talks to address these concerns. Over time, we have continued to expand the scope and breadth of these discussions with Taiwan. I had the honor of convening our twice yearly talks with Taiwan virtually on March 30th of this year. Key U.S. government officials and subject matter experts from the Department of State, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the American Institute of Taiwan engaged with their China, Taiwan counterparts to build support among like-minded countries and incorporate more stakeholders in this effort. It is important to note that these talks included a robust discussion of Taiwan's meaningful participation in UN agencies, as well as other international organizations and multi-stakeholder initiatives. Moving forward, the United States intends to focus on several priority areas to demonstrate the added value that Taiwan brings to the international system and tackling regional and global challenges. First, working with like-minded nations to advocate for Taiwan's role in global health efforts, such as COVID relief, as well as cancer research and other research efforts in the WHO and its subsidiary organizations, including the International Agency for research on cancer, known as IARC in Diplo-speak. Second, advocating for opportunities for Taiwan to attend the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, and Interpol meetings, and exchange key aviation safety and law enforcement data to promote safer air travel and combat transnational crime. Third, including Taiwan in the, the Biden administration's renewed efforts to tackle global climate change partnering with Taiwan under the auspices of AIT and TECRO to address critical needs and critical technology related to climate change. From halting the spread of deadly disease to ensuring safe and secure aviation to stopping global criminal networks, the 24 million people of Taiwan can make an important and constructive contribution in the international system. In the face of unprecedented global challenges, we will continue to work assiduously to secure Taiwan's vital voice in the room. I thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I welcome your questions. Thank you, Ambassador, so much. Uh, thanks to the both of you. So we'll begin questions from the uh, subcommittee. Um, let, me, let me ask you this. Looking back at the Taiwan Relations Act, the three communiques, and the six assurances, which have guided our very delicate uh, relationship with Taiwan, are there any uh, plans to alter that framework at all uh, that uh, those foundational documents have established? Thank you very much for the question, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the United States believes that we have been very effective in stewarding the, the unofficial relationship between ourselves and Taiwan uh, since the uh, enactment of the Taiwan Relations Act. And uh, we have a commitment to maintaining a consistent approach to our One China policy based on that legislation and the three joint communiques, as well as the six assurances. So nothing is going to change. Uh, Senator, I, I would say, or pardon me, uh, Mr. Chairman, I would say that uh, we are 
committed to being consistent in terms of our One China policy, but within the bounds of that One China policy, certainly uh, we are always seeking to strengthen our unofficial ties with uh, Taiwan, not only because Taiwan on its own merits is becoming a better, better partner in many different aspects, but because of the increasing threat from the other side of the strait. But again, I would reiterate that that would take place within the context uh, of the longstanding uh, U.S. One China policy. All right. Let me ask about the the, uh, the vaccines. What what is the schedule for those seven hundred fifty thousand uh, vaccines to the doses to get to uh, the people of Taiwan? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for that question. Uh, and first of all, I would like to reiterate our thanks to your colleagues for their trip to Taiwan to announce that. Uh, that donation, uh, I think it's fair to say the reaction on the island was nothing short of ecstatic. Um, with regards to actually getting those on airplanes and flying them, I, I don't have a, a set date that I can uh, provide, Mr. Chairman. What I can tell you is that uh, Taiwan regulators are working uh, super intensively with their uh, USG counterparts to make sure that we have met all of the uh, requirements of the Taiwan regulatory system. And in very short order, we do expect to have those uh, vaccines on their way to Taiwan and hopefully into people's arms shortly thereafter. You're saying within weeks they will be there. Is that what you're saying? Um, I would hope perhaps even in sooner than that, sir, but I'm not able to give a detailed uh, timeline for exactly when. We do have a few more hoops we have to get through to make sure that we have met all of the regulatory requirements of our Taiwan friends. Okay. And are, there, uh, are there plans to partner with Taiwan to manufacture and distribute vaccines? Thank you, Chairman. Uh, as you know, President Biden has made it clear that America wants to work together with its friends and partners to become an arsenal of vaccines. Uh, Taiwan does have capacity in this regard, and there are talks underway uh, to see how we can cooperate with Taiwan, amongst many others, to get the entire world vaccinated to end this pandemic. Um, as uh, both you and the ranking member mentioned in your remarks, Taiwan was incredibly generous and showed great flexibility in upping its production of personal protective equipment in the early days of the crisis. Uh, they ramped up their production many, many uh, multiples of tenfold. And of course, uh, the United States was one of the great beneficiaries of their generosity. Uh, but we will look to do the same with them on vaccines. No, I think, I think it makes a lot of sense and it would only deepen our relationship with them. And uh, the United States has supplied 550,000 COVID-19 vaccines to South Korean armed forces who serve alongside U.S. forces, given the consequences of a COVID-19 outbreak to the operational readiness of Taiwan's armed forces, would the administration consider providing vaccines as an extension of our commitment to Taiwan's self-defense? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As you know, this first tranche, uh, we have uh, set aside 750,000 doses <coughs> of vaccine for, for the island. Uh, and this is, of course, only the first of what we hope will be many tranches of, uh, of donations. I can't speak to specific allocations that will happen in the second and then hopefully third and then future uh, tranches, but we will continue to uh, take into uh, consideration the needs of our very close friends in Taiwan, keeping in mind not only their security needs, but also the fact that uh, a number of very critical industries, like semiconductors, for example, could potentially be affected by an unchecked uh, outbreak of COVID there. Yeah, and I, and I recognize that our armed forces don't serve alongside of the Taiwan armed forces the way our forces do with the South Korean uh, military. But I do believe that uh, these vaccines can be as valuable if they go directly to those troops as any weapon system, which we sell to Taiwan. So I would recommend 
to the administration that they look at that. So let me turn and recognize uh, the ranking member, the gentleman from Utah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, I think it may well be confusing to uh, to our public generally and perhaps to people on the Hill to uh, to consider two things. One is the term that says that we believe in the one China policy, and then at the same time to say that we believe the people of Taiwan be able, ought to be able to choose their own destiny. Can, can you describe what the one China policy means and how you square that with the principle that uh, that the people of Taiwan should be able to choose their own course? Thank you very much, Ranking Member Romney. That's a, that's a great question and certainly one that could use some some further public elucidation. The One China policy refers to the fact that we have diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. Um, and of course, that has implications for who is seated in various uh, international organizations. My colleague, Ambassador Ruggles, can, can speak to that. Uh, but under, the, uh, yeah, under our One China policy, even though our relationship with Taiwan is now on an unofficial basis, uh, we nonetheless have made clear uh, in both uh, public statements, private demarches, and, and otherwise, uh, that we will continue to uh, maintain and, and, in fact, even grow a very, very close relationship with Taiwan in the security, in the economic, in the cultural, and many other spheres. Uh, as you point out, Taiwan is a fellow democracy. It is important uh, to peace and stability in the Western Pacific, and it is absolutely uh, in the U.S. interest to make sure that uh, the 24 million people of Taiwan are able to make choices about their own future, free from coercion from across the strait. And so we will continue to do everything we can to show that rock-solid American support for Taiwan's democracy and for its ability to choose its own future. My uh, perception of uh, how we're doing uh, really falls into sort of two buckets. One uh, uh, is associated with the people of Taiwan. Uh, the, my reading suggests that what the Communist China, Chinese Party has done in Hong Kong uh, has has solidified in the mind of the Taiwanese people that the idea of, uh, of one one country, two systems is not real. Uh, and uh, and the most recent uh, actions, even today, where the Chinese Communist Party uh, has uh, raided a, a newspaper and incarcerated uh, uh, leaders of a independent newspaper in Hong Kong, uh, this has got to underscore in the minds of the people of Taiwan that um, uh, that that China has a very different intent than allowing them to, to, to operate on their own if they were somehow combined with China. On the other hand, my perception is that, that the nations of the world, the geopolitical dynamics, have not been working in favor of a uh, strong and uh, free-to-make-its-own-choice Taiwan, that instead the, the, the geopolitical uh, uh, dominoes have been falling in the other direction in terms of them being excluded for, from more and more international bodies, uh, having uh, recognition, uh, being shut off by, by nations in the region. And, uh, and I wonder why it is, if I'm correct, that, that, uh, that China is, if you will, being more effective in, in uh, closing off uh, uh, Taiwan from international support, uh, why they're being successful at that and why we're being unsuccessful at that, while they're winning and we're losing. Thank you, Ranking Member Romney. Uh, we are of one mind on your observations regarding Hong Kong and how that applies to Taiwan. I obviously don't want to be in the position of speaking for folks on Taiwan, but clearly 
uh, PRC promises of high degree of autonomy for Hong Kong and maintenance of Hong Kong civil liberties have been completely and thoroughly discredited over the last year, particularly since the enactment, the unilateral enactment of the national security law. So it is no surprise that, uh, that folks in Taiwan uh, who might at one point in, in the past have contemplated uh, some consideration uh, restarting our trade and investment framework agreement talks. Uh, we have not had a round of uh, TIFA council meetings, I think for something like four or five years now, but uh, I do believe that USDR uh, is planning to hold one of those in the very near future. Uh, there's obviously a broad range of issues to go uh, into great detail with Taiwan, given they're our ninth largest trading partner and home to many uh, industries of a very strategic importance, whether that's in the health sector or semiconductors. Uh, but I think it's probably safest for me to defer to my colleagues uh, on, 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 on 17th Street there. Senator, thank you. As much of cross-strait relations are mired in strategic ambiguity on both sides, it may become more difficult to distinguish between actions that fall below the threshold of conflict with those that risk leading to an escalation. We know from the U.S.-China summit in Anchorage, Alaska, that China's leaders are not shy about referring to Taiwan as a red line issue or part of its core interests. The implication being that it is willing to go to war over Taiwan. I believe that we need to have ongoing dialogues to ensure that a military exercise or an incident at sea does not become a prelude to a conflict. As the Singaporean Prime Minister recently said of the stakes uh, of a U.S.-China war, everything is to be lost. Mr. Fritz, do you agree that it is in the interest of all sides to avoid a war over Taiwan, which would lead to catastrophic consequences for all parties involved? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I absolutely agree with that. And I would like to point out that uh, along the lines of what you just mentioned, uh, in Anchorage and elsewhere, our top leadership, including Secretary Blinken, have made it extremely clear uh, to our PRC counterparts that it would be a very serious mistake for them to resort to anything other than peaceful means to resolve cross-strait differences. I think in both word and deed, we've made it crystal clear uh, to our friends in Taiwan, uh, to, uh, to the leaders in Beijing and to folks around the world, how important uh, peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait is. Now, some observers say that China is unlikely to move to forcefully attempt to unify Taiwan, barring a push for independence by Taiwan. Others note that their calculus is driven by the moment uh, in it, when it believes it is most militarily advantageous for them to do so. Regardless of what motivates Beijing, our policy approach should be the same. Do you agree that it is important to signal that any disruption to the status quo, be it through forcible unification or independence, is unacceptable? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I agree with that statement. So I don't believe that we are entering a new Cold War with China, but we can draw upon lessons from U.S.-Soviet and U.S.-Russia uh, transparency and confidence-building steps and formal agreements that help prevent the Cold War from going hot. And I'm concerned that we do not have an active crisis hotline between our militaries. And I'm also concerned that Secretary of State Blinken indicated following the Anchorage summit that we would not be seeking a follow-on strategic dialogue with China. Uh, it's in our interest to ensure that a conflict in the Strait of the Strait or the uh, South China Sea does not escalate
between the United States and China, both of whom are nuclear armed. It is still, uh, is it still the position of the State Department that it does not seek an additional strategic stability dialogue with Beijing to negotiate measures that reduce the risk of hostilities? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You raise a very, very important uh, series of issues there. Um, I would point out that uh, this administration, while it is not interested in dialogue for dialogue's sake, is still very much committed to uh, maintaining open lines of communication with Beijing so that sensitive issues like Taiwan, amongst many others, uh, are not able to cause misunderstandings uh, that could lead to some unfortunate consequences. As you pointed out, uh, and obviously it's in quite in the public eye, we've already had uh, the Secretary and National Security Advisor Sullivan meeting with their counterparts in Anchorage. Uh, I can assure you that the Secretary uh, and, uh, and the Deputy Secretary of State have had additional uh, interactions with their counterparts uh, since then. Uh, we expect those to continue going forward. The issue of communications in a crisis is indeed a very important one. That is something that uh, is very high on our agenda. We have no desire for misunderstandings uh, that could potentially lead to uh, unfortunate consequences. And uh, so that will indeed uh, be something that will factor very high on the agenda, both at the State Department and other agencies around the executive branch as well. Okay, well, the Chinese, mil the Chinese military's incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone and amphibious assault exercises have increased to their highest levels in 25 years. These actions have raised concerns about a looming conflict over Taiwan. However, we also know that a protracted conflict over Taiwan is not likely in China's interest, that their military does not seem to have the appropriate military capabilities for such a confrontation, and that Beijing has responded in a similar provocative way to U.S. arms sales to Taiwan in the past and in response to shifts in Taiwanese politics. Mr. Fritz, to what do you assign recent provocative moves by Beijing in the Taiwan Strait? Thank you for that question, Mr. Chairman. Uh, there is some debate about that. Uh, Beijing's leadership is notoriously opaque, and so it would be somewhat difficult for me to opine with any sort of authoritativeness on uh, what is motivating uh, the PRC to take an ever more aggressive approach to intimidating uh, Taiwan. Uh, Certainly, uh, much of it has to do, I believe, with the fact that uh, the PRC is very upset with the uh, results of the two most recent presidential elections on the island. That obviously has calculated, has factored into their calculations quite severely. Uh, the U.S. government's uh, view is that as uh, Beijing seeks to uh, disrupt the status quo by upping the pressure, it is incumbent upon us to uh, further reinforce our support for Taiwan. In addition to the United States doing that, uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd also point out that uh, another very important factor, we think, in deterring uh, Beijing aggression is to make this more of a multilateral issue. And that's why we've worked so hard with our friends and allies, the Japanese, the South Koreans, our Five Eyes partners, the G7, uh, the Europeans, uh, to get them to come out in public and, and also voice their support for Taiwan's democracy and for uh, peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Well, let me just uh, let me just finish up by saying that Taiwan has taken important steps to increase its defense budget. However, it has averaged 1.8 to 2.1 percent of GDP over the last five years, short of the three percent target that U.S. and Taiwan policymakers have made. Uh, my hope is that the Biden administration. Uh, supports uh, the effort to get Taiwan to move closer to that 3% target. It's a wealthy country. 
Is that the goal of the Biden administration? Yes, that is, okay, Mr. Chairman. You. Let me turn, recognize the uh, senator from Utah, Mr. Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we're going to give Mr. Haggerty a chance to speak in just a minute, but he, he said, let me go first, so I will do that. Um, there are many fronts on which we would like China to take a different course. Uh, this is obviously one of them, their ambition to, uh, to dominate the people of Taiwan, uh, but their treatment of the Uyghurs and minorities, uh, uh, religions, uh, their, their predatory actions in the, in the world economic marketplace. There, there are so many dimensions where, where we, we would like China to change, change course. Um, uh, but that raises the question about what we can do and what the administration's strategy is with regards to convincing the Chinese Communist Party uh, to allow Taiwan to uh, determine its own destiny and not to invade or dominate the, the people of Taiwan. And I'm not talking about military action. Clearly, there's a military component that, that, it, that figures very significantly into uh, any effort to dissuade uh, China from invasion or, or, uh, or, or, uh, or the like. But, uh, but putting aside military uh, deterrent, uh, what things can we do uh, that, that would have the potential of convincing China, let's not focus on, on making Taiwan a vassal state? And uh, we look back, we walked away from the TPP. Many people thought that the agreement that we might have in the region economically would be able to um, uh, strengthen our hand relative to China and, and create a stronger uh, neighborhood. Um, the Quad obviously has potential with regards to that, uh, that effort. But I'm, I'm interested in, in your view and the administration's view about what actions we can take. Uh, we, we oftentimes, when people do bad things, we, we place sanctions on them. Uh, the challenge with sanctions, of course, is that's what we do after they've done the bad thing. And we would like to prevent the bad thing from happening. What, what is our, our strategy with regards to convincing the Chinese not to uh, uh, play a heavy hand uh, uh, with regards to Taiwan? Thank you, uh, Ranking Member Romney. Uh, that's a fabulous question. Um, first, uh, we point out to our PRC counterparts often that uh, few countries have benefited from peace and stability in that part of the world as much as the People's Republic of China has. Second, we make it clear that this is not just a bilateral concern. As I pointed out, uh, we have been hard at work making sure that uh, uh, major partners of ours around the world are speaking up uh, and demonstrating their support for Taiwan. And again, not necessarily in a military fashion, diplomatically, economically, uh, parliamentary exchanges. There are a number of ways for that to be uh, manifested. Uh, third, we've also been very, very clear, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, with the PRC in terms of, um, I guess I, I would be best suited to, to just quote the uh, Secretary Blinken. I mean, he, he said it would be a very serious mistake for anyone to resort to anything other than peaceful means to resolve cross-strait differences. And I am very confident uh, that the PRC leaders in Beijing are crystal clear that if they were to uh, decide to use uh, some coercive manner to uh, unify Taiwan, they would face grave consequences. And as you pointed out, uh, Ranking Member Romney, uh, those would not necessarily be confined to the military arena either. Reputational, economic, uh, there'd be any number of areas in which I think uh, they would have to think very, very long and hard about uh, making a, a momentous choice like that. 
I would just note my own personal view that the more specific we might be in advance with not only our own communications, but also with communications of our friends and allies around the world about the economic consequence of China using coercive means to impose its will on Taiwan would potentially be helpful in dissuading them from using such means. Uh, and that, that, that would be helpful for us to be uh, extraordinarily explicit and for our friends and allies around the world to combine and speak about this specifically so that China would have a good sense of what we're talking about. Because frankly, China and Russia, for that matter, have done a lot of bad things over the past couple of decades. And we've told them of the terrible consequences that would be rained upon them for the things they did. But somehow they're getting along just fine. And the consequence was not as great as they might have once feared. I think we need to be more specific as, as we deal with, uh, with China and its potential uh, aggressiveness with regards to Taiwan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Great. Um, Senator Hackety. Thank you, Chairman Markey, Ranking Member Romney. Thank you very much for the time here today and for having this he hearing. To our witnesses, thank you. Uh, Ambassador, I'd like to start with you, if I might. It's a point that's been a concern of mine for some time regarding international organizations, and that's the fact that American funding of these organizations is far disproportionate to the American employees that are present at those organizations. We're far underrepresented in my perspective. And if I look at how other countries accomplish disproportionate overrepresentation, they take advantage of a, a series of programs. Um, the UN Junior Professional Officer Program, the World Bank Donor-Funded Staffing Program, and the UN Special Assistant to the Regional Coordinating Program. In particular, China has done a big, a, a big job at doing this and achieving in doing so, achieving a disproportionate representation, disproportionately high representation of these organizations. It also is evident to me that the United States, very the United States takes very little advantage of these organizations, and it puts us at a numeric disadvantage when you look at how we project our influence in these organizations, how we make American thought and American perspective heard, particularly in light of the fact that these other countries that do not pay as much on a percentage basis, are overrepresented. Overrepresented, excuse me. So I'd like to know how many of these positions, these three programs that I just mentioned, does the department currently fund? And do we intend to continue funding those? I'd like to get an accounting of that. Thank you, Senator, for your question, <clears throat> and I appreciate your interest in uh, this important issue. Uh, we have been examining this as part of our efforts supported uh, very generously by the Senate, um, and we appreciate your support for that. Um, as we have set up our new office of multilateral strategy and personnel, which we are uh, now in the process of getting authorization for and hope to be staffing in the next several weeks here, um, because this is an important issue. How do we uh, take best advantage of those programs throughout the UN system and throughout the other international organization systems to make sure that we are placing the next generation of American professionals in those organizations to ensure their integrity, their strength, uh, their efficacy, um, and also their accountability, um, because we do provide a lot of funding for those organizations. I don't have the exact figures of uh, the number of JPOs that we, uh, that, that we pay for in the system, but that number I know is increasing, uh, again, in part due to the support um, we have received uh, from this committee and from, and from the Senate. Um, we appreciate very much that effort, 
and we uh, are in the process of preparing uh, our regular reports on these programs uh, where we will have the numbers and we're happy to share those with you. Um, but we are looking at how do we increase not only in the JPO programs, mm -hmm. but also in the mid ranks and in the senior ranks and making sure that we have, if not Americans, like-minded partners and allies that share our values who are in those positions. Because it is important, not only in the senior leadership positions, but all the way down, that you have people who are going to be independent-minded, that are going to reinforce the values and the foundational strengths of the international system so that we can uh, fight back against this bullying that has been happening. Well, I, I would look forward to um, hearing from your organization if you could provide a timeline of how these numbers have, have moved over time. I'm encouraged to hear that they're increasing, at least that's your sense of it. And I'd also like to understand what measures you're taking, particularly at the financial organizations and the standard-setting organizations, um, how you are, are strategizing a way to move forward in this, and in particular, the uh, HR policies that may be discriminatory toward Americans. My understanding is that if a person has dual citizenship, that they're counted as an American uh, rather than as whatever the other citizenship might be. Again, making the numbers harder for us to accomplish. Um, and I'm particularly concerned with respect to World Bank, IMF roles there in terms of us being underrepresented. And it's become even more obvious to me in recent years that standard-setting bodies, particularly with respect to 5G, are an area where we need to be deeply concerned and deeply focused on being properly represented there. So I appreciate uh, a report back at your earliest convenience on that. And Mr. Fritz, if I could turn to you, please. Um, I appreciate the fact that in April, the department has issued new guidelines for how we interact as the United States government with Taiwanese counterparts. And I certainly support the fact that we're going to be more, uh, more focused on and, and taking a greater uh, perspective on having our United States diplomats engage with Taiwanese counterparts in, in that regard. I want to particularly commend my former uh, DCM, Joe Young, who's now the charge or was most recently the charge of affairs in Japan, for hosting his counterpart um, at the Taiwan Economic and Cultural Office there in Japan at the U.S. Ambassador's residence. I think that sends a very strong message. Um, Deputy Assistant Secretary Fritz, I wanted you to provide any further updates that you might have on these guidelines, how we're making progress on this, and how you see it unfolding. Thank you very much for that question, Senator. And uh, I can tell you that uh, these new guidelines are indeed the most liberal that we've had since, uh, you know, since basically 1980 when, when we first started issuing these at the State Department. Um, and uh, there are a number of restrictions uh, that were uh, part of earlier versions that have been lifted, uh, allowing for more easy contacts, meetings in uh, U.S. office buildings at the offices of the uh, Taipei Economic Cultural Representative Office, mm -hmm. Uh, and we are, without going into specifics of any of these specific meetings, I can tell you we're taking full advantage of these. And our Taiwan friends are noting this and are quite appreciative. Uh, I would point out that uh, the new contact guidelines have, have been welcomed um, in public uh, uh, from President Tsai's office down through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to TECRO here in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. Uh, and you really can see uh, the uptick in interactions between U.S. government officials and their Taiwan counterparts. Well, I would just note this, and I appreciate the time, but the meeting between Charge d'Affaires Young and his counterpart at the ambassador's residence in Japan got press all over the Japanese media and all over Asia. So this can make a real mark. It can send a real message. So I appreciate your expanding this policy as much as possible. Thank you. Senator Coons, do you have any additional questions? No. Back to you, Senator Romney. Just a couple of questions uh, and comment. Uh, 
my understanding is that uh, China has used uh, its um, uh, its vaccines as a key part of diplomacy. At the same time, it is it has used uh, uh, this opportunity to suggest that America is not a a, a very helpful ally of the people of Taiwan. Um, uh, Taiwan's ambassador indicated that she had actually uh, received um, uh, indication of texts texts coming from the Chinese Communist Party saying that Americans have so much vaccine that we're vaccinating our pets and that we think more of our dogs than we think of the people of Taiwan. This kind of misinformation spreads throughout Taiwan. And, and therefore, I want to underscore something that others have raised, which is the urgency of getting vac- vaccinations, of getting vaccines to the people of Taiwan. Um, there's a need for about 2 million uh, vaccinations. We've agreed to 750,000. I would strongly encourage us to move as soon as we can to, to the higher number. Uh, and and that we get these to the people of Taiwan as urgently as we possibly can. Um, this is a nation obviously seeing a significant uptick in in infections uh, given the the Delta variant, uh, and uh, it has humanitarian implications, but also strategic implications that uh, that are that are very important given the disinformation campaign that the Chinese are carrying out. Is this? Is what I'm saying consistent with your own understanding of what's happening with regards to Chinese misinformation? And, and is that happening on various fronts around the world? Uh, Ranking Member Romney, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think Taiwan is probably a receiving you know, the, the, the brunt of PRC disinformation. Uh, on the other hand, we've also seen Taiwan develop quite a bit of resilience to this sort of thing. They're getting very good at identifying and pushing back with you know, media literacy, social media literacy programs, uh, transparency, uh, basically, and, and we have actually quite a lot to learn from them in terms of combating disinformation. And back to the Global Cooperation and Training Framework uh, platform uh, that Senator uh, Coons mentioned, uh, we have been able to use that platform to take some of Taiwan's expertise and share it with others around the world who are also subjected to PRC disinformation, but also disinformation from other bad actors, whether that be the Russians or others. One more question, and that is, um, I would hate for us in our um, uh, our concern about China's interference in the region uh, with the people of, of Taiwan to, to do something or say something as a body or as individuals that would precipitate or give an excuse to China uh, to take action they might not otherwise take. Do you have any warning or, or, or guidelines or suggestions to us? Uh, because a number of us feel like you know we we might want to make it very clear that we stand with with the free people of Taiwan, uh, that we abhor what the Communist China, Chinese Party is uh, uh, has communicated in its intent with regards to Taiwan. But but are there are there uh, boundaries we should not cross uh, for fear of precipitating some type some type of course of action? Well, that is a, that's a great question, uh, Ranking Member Romney. Thank you for that. Of course, that is the entire premise of our One China policy, to make sure that we um, you know, abide by uh, you know, our diplomatic ties with Beijing, while at the same time, under the, you know, uh, within the parameters of our unofficial relationship with Taiwan, doing everything we can to support them. Uh, that includes uh, you know, you know, stronger security cooperation, commercial ties across the board, uh, vaccine donations, uh, visits from uh, from VIPs, etc. Uh, but we also, as you point out, want to make very careful, be very careful, not to engage in any uh, symbolic sorts of provocations that would do nothing other than merely raise the risk for Taiwan and perhaps uh, you know, precip- precipitate the very thing that we are trying to avoid and deter, which is uh, you know the PRC uh, feeling compelled to take you know, some sort of coercive action against the island. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Romney. Um, and again, you know, we're, we've been in a situation over the last several months in our country where, um, on a bipartisan basis, Democrats and Republicans are coming together uh, to pass comprehensive legislation uh, in order to deal with uh, the economic threat, the strategic threat that uh, China uh, poses to our country. And, uh, and part of that is um, a, a bill that's going to be very large, a couple of hundred billion dollars uh, looking at this issue and trying to unleash the innovation inside of our country. Uh, but when you really peel it all back, we're looking at the fact that semiconductors are now not made in the United States uh, in any substantial um, measure. And, uh, and as a result, we're vulnerable because our country runs on semiconductors. We're a chip-driven country. Uh, and that's who we are. We're only 5% of America's, of the world's population, uh, but we're not an ordinary 5%, and that's because we're an advanced technological uh, country. And, of course, underlying this is a, um, a realization that 50% of all the chips in the world are made in Taiwan. And so it only further reemphasizes how important Taiwan is to us, uh, which I would say brings us back again to uh, vaccines, um, to to look at the $200 billion piece of legislation we're going to move to deal with it. But yet over here we have um, uh, an additional capacity to help. And I, I would uh, urge that we do that uh, because I think it actually is part of a larger story right now. Uh, and we want to cement that relationship and the, the great work of Senator Coons uh, and other members of the Senate in visiting uh, Taiwan is obviously very important. But... At the same time, the more we do is the less costly it could be to us in the long term by uh, welding uh, the Taiwanese people to the interests of the United States. Um, and let me, let me ask you, Ambassador Box Ruggles, the United States meets quarterly with Japan, Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, and the EU to discuss ways to expand Taiwan's participation in international organizations. What does the world have to gain from a Taiwan that has an elevated global profile? Mr. Chairman, I appreciate your question on that. The, the Taiwanese people, as you have pointed out, have advanced industry and an advanced economy that has much to, to offer on a number of fronts, including on uh, the technological front for uh, combating climate change, it also has a lot to offer, as you have noted repeatedly, on, uh, on health issues uh, spanning from COVID uh, and their response to COVID to cancer research, where they have done some very advanced research that we have worked with them on and our research institutes have worked with them on. Um, we believe that they have a voice, they have expertise, and they have experience that is valuable to the entire world in combating these global issues. But they also have uh, have a lot to bring to the table in areas from civil aviation safety, where they have an enormous experience dealing with a, a very tough geography for their airport, uh, and they can bring that to the to the table at the civil aviation organization, and in law enforcement and combating international global criminal networks, where we think that they could bring a lot more to bear at Interpol and related agencies. So. Uh, 
24 million people with an advanced economy should have a voice at the table on all of these fronts, and we're committed to trying to work with them to do so. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you when you talk about uh, civil aviation. It doesn't uh, make any sense. China can't obviously want there to be mid-air aviation collisions, so excluding Taiwan from the civil air organization makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And again, I just think it's important for us to press as hard as we can for entrance. Let me turn again to you, Senator Hegarty. Thank you, Chairman Markey. I just want to follow on this point that you raised. I'd like to turn to Mr. Fritz, though. This is something that, that again, is of great concern and very related to the last uh, line of questions. It has to do with Taiwan's diplomatic posture and the fact that since President Tsai was inaugurated in 2016, Taiwan's lost seven. They're down to 15 diplomatic partners right now. Um, I would like to get your read on the trend here, Mr. Fritz, and what you think the United States might be able to do to help Taiwan maintain its diplomatic presence. Uh, the, the Communist Chinese Party pressure on this is enormous, as you know, and they've been fairly effective since President Tsai took office. So I'd look forward to your, your thoughts on this trend. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Senator Haggerty. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The trend has been been quite bad. As you pointed out, seven of uh, Taiwan's diplomatic partners have been poached since uh, Taiwan won election in 2016. And uh, as several of your colleagues have pointed out, um, the PRC has been very aggressively using uh, vaccine donations as a lever to induce more uh, of Taiwan's diplomatic partners to, to switch recognition. Uh, we do engage very uh, intensively with, uh, with Taiwan's remaining diplomatic partners and point out to them uh, the many benefits of having a reliable uh, partner that, in fact, does not use, uh, whether it's vaccines or investments or any other lever as sort of a, you know, a, a tool of political coercion, if you will. Um, also working uh, with our Taiwan friends to, um, to help uh, uh, promote uh, investments and trade with those remaining diplomatic partners. Um, I would point out that in addition to the, the, those remaining diplomatic partners, so those 15, we're also working very hard on the rest of the world, all of those countries that do not have diplomatic relations with Taiwan anymore, but can and should have even stronger unofficial ties. We're trying to set a good example of that ourselves uh, with uh, recent actions, uh, and we believe that the more... Um, whether that's uh, folks in Europe or Asia or elsewhere are engaging, you know, within the bounds of their own, you know, diplomatic versions of our one China policy, culturally, uh, parliamentary exchanges, uh, closer commercial ties, all of that is to the good. And I think um, over time is a, is a quite important strategic deterrent uh, to the PRC when it, you know, sits down and thinks about, you know, even the possibility of, of a non-peaceful strategy for unifying the island. Thank you. I thank uh, uh, the senator. Um, we thank the witnesses for your great testimony today. Uh, I don't see any other members who are seeking recognition at this time, so I want to thank uh, all of you for your participation. And I applaud the Biden administration for its work to strengthen our partnership with Taiwan, the recent statements from U.S.-Japan, U.S.-South Korea, and the G7 summits in support of Taiwan are just one indication of this administration building back a better foreign policy. And for the information of the members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Monday, June 21st, for any other members seeking to, uh, uh, in writing, submit questions to the administration. So with that, this hearing is adjourned. <laughs>